0: Welcome to the Audit 15 Fund podcast. My goal with this podcast is to bring relevant internal audit topics to the table at least every 15 days. Today, I have the honor to have as my guest, Brian Nosek. He is the Executive Director of the Center for Open Science and a professor at the University of Virginia. Welcome, Brian, to the podcast. It's an honor to have you on.
1: Thank you, John. Happy to be here.
0: Yes, absolutely. And today, we're gonna to be talking about some data controversy. So it is specific to the case related to Francesca Gino. She's a professor, she was a professor with Harvard and she was accused of data manipulation in some of her studies. And just a little disclaimer here before we get started with the questions, all of the questions, all of the uh, content based on this interview, they're just a matter of opinion. So it's just a discussion because we wanna talk about the topic of data manipulation. So Brian, my knowledge of the case is Francesca Gino, she had some research done, and she allegedly manipulated some of the data so that the result from her research would be statistically relevant, right? It's what some in the field call p-hacking, changing the p-value so that it is statistically relevant. Is that a fair statement of what this is about? Or are there any any gaps there that you like to fill based on your expertise within data science?
1: Yeah. And the, the core is that a lot of advancement in science is based on finding positive results. Looks like these groups are different or this intervention had an impact on the outcome. And to find those positive results, one has to in the standard practice, achieve a p value of 0.05 or less, which is indicating how unusual is this if there were nothing uh, to detect in the world. Uh, and if it's really unusual, and say, like, oh, maybe we did detect something uh, that's different than what would be the assumption of nothing there. Uh, and that is really at the core uh, of what the concern is here is that the data uh, in some of Francesca's studies were changed after the fact to achieve statistical significance to observe positive results.
0: Yes, yes. And just for for transparency as well. So the the way that this came into play is her research was out there. She had shared with some researchers or some some peers. Uh, there's a team that's called Data Colada. They have a website, they have a blog and within their blog they allegedly mentioned that she was manipulating data. And Francesca, she sued Data Colada and she also is suing Harvard and Data Colada. They're doing a fundraising for legal fees. You are one of the organizers for the fundraising for legal fees related to Data Colada. So I just want to throw that out there just for full transparency here for the episode. So Brian, and I want to get to some of the content here specifically related to to the data manipulation and and some of the content that uh, has been uh, out in the open now. So based on your review of the evidence provided by the Data Collada team, in your opinion, what would you say is the most compelling evidence that the data from Gina's research was indeed manipulated?
1: Good question. Uh, Data Collada summarized four separate investigations of four published results by Francesca and other co-authors, four different findings. And each of those is compelling on its own in my uh, view. Uh, But the one that stands out in terms of the most compelling from just data Collada's analysis uh, is the one that they released first. Uh, And what they observed in this particular case was a data set that looked like it was um, sorted in a sensible way in the data file but there were some intri- intriguing exceptions uh, that didn't follow what you would assume is sorting from one to 10, uh, you know, to oversimplify. Uh, and they looked at those exceptions that seemed out of order, uh, and two interesting things were true about those exceptions. One is that those exceptions created a positive result. They were very, very, very aligned with my hypothesis. Whereas the rest of the data was not very aligned with the hypothesis. So that's one intriguing thing. Oh, these ones look unusual and they're supporting the result, but that's not sufficient on its own to know that there was manipulation. What they did as a secondary step that to me makes it a very compelling uh, set of evidence is that they looked at the metadata of Excel, because this was stored in Excel uh, and the there is a function in the metadata called the calc chain, which actually documents changes that happen in the data set over time. And so they looked at that calc chain and they said, well, these ones are unusual. If they were manipulated, it would have been because they moved them from, for example, one condition to a different condition where they're more aligned with the hypothesis. And that metadata exactly aligned with the observation that they look suspicious And they super support the hypothesis. So the combination of those three pieces of evidence to me was very compelling that those data were directly manipulated in order to produce a positive result. Okay.
0: Yeah. This is something that internal auditors are very familiar with looking at metadata to, to see how files were changed. So I think that's uh, some good information there. So data Colada published those results on their blog then we have the lawsuit from from uh, Francesca Gino and she provided some lengthy uh, lengthy response in her lawsuit to some of yeah. the allegations and based on your comment uh, you mentioned that the evidence that she provided in her lawsuit was not compelling enough so in your opinion what compelling alternative explanations would she have to provide to convince you and others in the field that Indeed, the data was not manipulated.
1: Yeah, I would love, there's the, the funny thing for me in this context is the example we just went through is I can't generate a plausible alternative explanation to the data being manipulated. It seems almost direct evidence from here it is, the metadata showing changes. Here is the data. Oh, it was changed. Oh. Uh, Nevertheless, being, you know, being in science, I have to accept that there are unknown unknowns. And there's always the possibility uh, that there is something that could account for this, that I am not smart enough to generate as a hypothesis. So in that regard, I feel like, okay, if there is an alternative explanation, let's hear it. And that alternative explanation could be, here is a way in which... The data could have been generated that are not via fraudulent, uh, not fraudulently uh, conducted. I can't imagine what that would be, but I can accept that that's a possibility in principle. A more plausible possibility is yes, the data were manipulated, but it wasn't me. Here's the person that did it. Okay, that I don't have. I never observed anybody changing these data. Neither did Data Colada. So we have to be open to the possibility that. It wasn't Francesca, but in fact, somebody else. There's other metadata in other parts of this that suggests that it at least was done on a Excel that was registered to Francesca Gino. Uh, And so there are other things that sort of say, oh, it's hard to believe, but nevertheless possible, right? A research assistant could have gotten access to her machine and made all these changes, who knows? Um, So I would wanna hear some mechanism of how it is that it got from original data to what appeared in the paper that is an alternative to these data were manipulated and in order to produce a, a positive result. The part for me that re- actually sort of reinforces the original conclusion is that she, in the lawsuit, she does offer an explanation for that example I gave at the beginning for that first uh, critique that Data Colada offered, where uh, the explanation was, yeah, data were out of order, but that's because the original data was on paper, and so you enter it. You know, it doesn't necessarily come out in an order. And it's it is such a ridiculous explanation. It for me it reinforces that if that's the best alternative that she can generate given the accusation, oh boy, she's in real trouble here. Uh, because yes, when you enter data by hand, it could be in a different order, but that does nothing to account for the metadata showing that there was manipulation, that things were moved around, and it does nothing to account for the things that were moved around were, in fact, things that ended up producing evidence for the hypothesis. That it was on paper originally has nothing to do with that. So I I await more plausible alternative explanations, if any, exist.
0: Yes, yes. Okay. Very, Very, very good. And this all came about in, you know, some background on the Data Collada team. They do, they, they want to keep researchers honest. At least that's my understanding of part yeah. of their mission is to make sure that research that's published can be replicated independently. Yeah. And if it cannot be replicated, they reach out to the researcher who was behind the research to try to understand. And then there's a process that they go through. So... In your opinion, this is more of a high level question. Yeah. What, what is the best way to keep researchers honest? And I'll, I'll, I'll give some color to this question as well. Yeah. In Data Collada's website, their blog, they say we share the data with the researcher beforehand. So they have a, a chance to provide their response. In Gino's lawsuit, she mentioned that she was not contacted by the Data Collada team prior. I don't know which one is right, and I'm not going to – that's not the purpose of the question, but try to understand, in your opinion, what is the best way to handle those scenarios where maybe the researcher – the research cannot be replicated and there are some potential issues with the research? What's the best way to keep researchers honest?
1: Yeah. No, it's an important question and a fundamental one. Uh, just on the very narrow point you mentioned, uh, Data Collada's standard process, because they do this this sort of uh, forensic work, as it were, uh, on a regular basis. They look at data and try to understand: can we is it credible? Can we trust uh, the findings uh, from this data? Either conducting an independent replication, or by looking into the data itself and looking for anomalies, like what we've just been discussing. And their standard practice is to share their evidence with uh, original authors to get to give them an opportunity to make corrections, find errors, and then write a response if they wish to do so. Uh, and they they did not do that, and they explicitly say we did not do that in this case uh, because of the investigation that was ongoing uh, at Harvard, and they didn't want to be a disruptor uh, to that. Um, so they they did. Uh, intentionally not follow their standard process of doing this uh, collaboratively, even in an adversarial context, collaboratively with the original authors. Uh, So that is different uh, than their norm. Um, But on the broader question, how do we keep researchers honest? The challenge that is a deep challenge is that the goal, of course, of research is to produce knowledge, discover truths about the world, right? It needs to be true. And if there is misconduct and deliberate falsehood in the literature, that directly undermines the entire value proposition of the research enterprise. And so much of the research enterprise is based on trust. We just, you know, you you report some findings. My default assumption is you're reporting them honestly. Like, why would I assume something different? Uh, Because I'm trying to build on them and then you're trying to build on me. And even if I disagree with your findings, is it? I will start from the assumption of, well, you're reporting them honestly. I just think you're an idiot. Uh, and I'm gonna tell you why I think you're an idiot or you know, whatever, right. and then we'll have right. a fight about it yeah. in scholarly literature, but we'll each, we'll each be trying uh, to get to the truth. We just have different perspectives on yeah. it, whatever. So mm-hmm. that's the base of what science is trying to do. But scientists are doing that work and scientists have motivations and scientists are embedded in a reward system about that has implications for who gets a job, who keeps their job, who becomes more famous, who becomes more rich, all of those other factors that influence any person in their occupations of choice uh, that might lead them to do things that advance their career at the cost of truth, honesty, integrity. So how best to keep research honest? Uh, I would look at it in the same way that we look at misconduct in criminal law, let's think about the motive, the means, and the opportunity. In the current research environment, the strong motive for researchers to do fabricate fraud uh, is that it can advance their career. Uh, Exciting results are the way in which I get a job, the way in which I keep my job, get more famous. Uh, get TED Talks, you know, all kinds of things that can become very lucrative are based on me discovering really exciting things. So there's a strong personal financial fame motive uh, to do misconduct in science. The means is relatively straightforward. To get exciting results, I have to get P less than 0.05 as one overly simplistic uh, explanation. I have to come up with some kind of idea of, wouldn't it be crazy if this thing were true? And then I have to show you evidence that in fact, that that's true. Now, misconduct can be a high motive there because getting the actual evidence is hard uh, because you have to design a real experiment and you have to run a real study. And then the actually reality has to be on your side uh, in order to get that result. And in science, reality often isn't on your side uh, because we have ideas, but we don't know how the world works. Uh, and the world says, nope. Not that, oh, okay. So we're wrong a lot in science. Right. Uh, And then the last is the opportunity, Mm -hmm. which is if you can't see in my lab, if you don't see how I do my work every day, if all of that's opaque to you and all you get to see is the paper that I write at the end, then I have plenty of opportunity to do misconduct because I can just change the words on the page. And then I have the finding and then given the standards of practice, you're going to say, oh, well, of course he did the research. Why wouldn't he have done the research? He said, this is what he found. So that's the challenging context. I'm going a little too long here, but let me, let's, what are the fixes uh, for how yes, to Yes,
0: exactly. Yeah. No. Right.
1: So there's the context. That's very good. Very good. Our, background. Oh, our transparency. If you can, if I have to show you my entire process, I have to show you my data, I have to share how it is I got there, then it's gonna be harder for me. I'm gonna have less opportunity uh, to do things that you would, that are misconduct or misleading that you would not be able to discover. And in fact, that has a help here in the data collata case, which is unusual for some other compared to in the past where a lot of these data sets were shared on the open science framework. And so the team was able to look at the data and interrogate it and discover some of these behaviors. Whereas 10 years ago, nobody shared their data. And so there would have been no way to even check this. Uh, You would never have discovered these sorts of things. So that is starting to address some of the opportunity. The motive is a real challenging one to address, but there are ways uh, to change it. I'll give one example. The reward system is by and large based on publication, and what it takes to get publication is positive, exciting results. But if we change what it takes to get a publication to design really effective methodologies and test important questions, and then publish it regardless of the results, then the motive changes. I don't need to get exciting results. I need to ask exciting questions, and I need to do very rigorous research to get my publication. And then the results of the results. That change, uh, our organization promotes a solution called Registered Reports, which is exactly that. It changes the publication model to shift the incentives for researchers to get the publication based on question and methodology, not on outcomes. And already 300 journals now uh, offer that as an option uh, and is starting to scale up and show promise. The means part uh, is another challenge, which is, you know, if as, as long as I have control over the data, I will be able to make changes to it. And you might be able to discover it with transparency, but it'd be nice if I had less option to even do it. So improving the data provenance chain, right, of the data collection instrumentation that collects the data, immediately pushing data into an archive like the Open Science Framework, stamping it making it so that it is clear, this is what the original data was, so that any changes to that are directly discoverable, would reduce the means uh, by which uh, researchers would have those opportunities. So sorry, that went on longer than <laughs> it should have. Been. No, no the, that, that was
0: very good. <laughs> I mean, cause yeah, we, we, we have to, you know, what is the problem? What's the root cause behind it and how do you address it? And I think you, you had some good points there just because this is a this podcast it's geared towards internal auditors and maybe they're not familiar with some of the things that you mentioned there open science framework so is that a framework that researchers are required to submit their work to or they're suggested to submit uh, their work to
1: good question so it is a website that is run by my organization it's a free and open uh, resource for researchers to document and share the, their entire research life cycle, their data, their materials, their protocols, their plans in advance. Uh, it is, at, at scale, it is not required. There are 600,000 uh, use, researchers using it uh, to share their work. Uh, and the policy landscape is incrementally shifting uh, toward requiring uh, use, not just of OSF, there are other tools uh, available for sharing data and otherwise. Uh, But this family of services that try to make the research process and outputs more transparent are becoming not just more normative, more popular, uh, but actually required uh, by journals as a condition of publication in their journal, by funders as a condition of receiving funding, uh, and the early onset uh, by institutions as a condition of being a researcher at that institution. So those are the three major stakeholders that can really help to shift uh, both the reward system and the policy uh, regime uh, that promotes this transparency.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Brian, for your insight.
1: Very glad to do it. Thanks for having me, John.